Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. There it is. All right, we're rolling. Now, I was told I had three hours. Thanks, Ben. That was generous. No, no, just kidding, just kidding. All right, no, that's, but that's, that's why I'm going to set a little timer here to try to keep myself on the rails. Um, well, John, Dr. Crutchfield stole all my thunder. I was going to talk about this, uh, this homecoming of mine. It's been 20 years since Annie and I graduated uh, from CIU, and uh, it's been a long, long journey uh, since then. We're out in Phoenix, Arizona. I knew academically where Phoenix was. Maybe it was Jack Lehman once upon a time that taught me where that was. I have, I have no idea. I had never visited there, uh, but the Lord called us to uh, a seminary post teaching uh, Old Testament and Hebrew and those sorts of things uh, out there in 2012. And uh, it's just a wonderful, uh, just a surreal, honestly, experience to be here with you. I just, it was 20 years ago I was in those seats and uh, listening to chapel speakers. I don't remember Authority of Scripture Week, though. I think it's a new implementation, uh, at least to make it so explicit. Authority of Scripture ran through the entire school, the entire curriculum, as I know it still does today, but it's wonderful to have a week devoted to such an important topic. Well, I was, I was tasked with trying to explain to you in two very short talks on how we got the Bible. Okay, so this talk is going to deal with the choosing of the books of the Bible, and tomorrow we're going to talk a little bit about manuscripts. How did we get the wording of the Bible? Okay, and I'm going to focus more on the Old Testament, but we'll dip into the New from time to time. But the overarching question for our week here is, should the Bible's history cause us to doubt its authority? Does that make sense? The book, the book has a long, complex history. Should that cause us to doubt its authority? I'm going to give you the quick answer, and then we could close in prayer after this, I think, but we won't. We won't. The Bible's history should cause us to appreciate its authority more, as well as inspire us to read it and study it more intently. I, I would also add in there to preach it, to teach it. Uh, as well. But you see, not all agree. Not all agree. And that's why we do this week, I would argue, every year. Here's from a very recent book called A Most Peculiar Book, The Inherent Strangeness of the Bible by Kristen Swenson. She puts it this way, considering that we don't have one original and indisputable Bible, but rather a collection that evolved over a long period of time for which our evidence is copies of copies, not all of which agree with one another. How can a person believe in it, much less live by it? That kind of goes right to the heart, doesn't it? That goes right to the heart. Let's just point out a couple things very quickly here. She's getting at this collection of books that evolved over a long period of time. We're going to talk about that right here and now. Then she talks about the evidence for that collection as copies of copies. So because there's so many copies, can we really trust the Word of God as it comes down to us? We're going to talk about that more tomorrow. And then a theme all throughout, I want to argue that yes, a person can believe in it. It's God's Word. And therefore, yes, we can 
live by it. So that's kind of the overarching issue here today, tomorrow, and Thursday. Now, just to get some terminology out of the way, yes, yes, uh, it's, uh, these are not misspellings, and yet Microsoft Word always wants me to include a second N in the word canon every time. And uh, of course, I like to say this here is an implement of war, right, that blows things up. Yeah. And, uh, but this over here, this canon is a bomb to the soul, isn't it? This canon shows us the way to be saved and shows us how to live a holy life before God and before each other. So what does canon mean then? Well, canon comes from a Greek word, kanon, that first meant a reed or a, a tall slender plant that grew along the Nile River. From there, the term came to mean something like a measuring stick or a rod, not unlike what we have pictured here. And then, in Christian theology, it became something like a rule, a rule of faith that determined whether one was orthodox or not. Do you believe Jesus was God? Right? Big question in the early centuries of the church. Well, the rule of faith, the canon, would help us decide that. Well, from here, canon came to mean a list of scriptural and authoritative books. And that's, that's what we're going to talk about here. So a working definition might be a canon is an exclusive list of authoritative books that reflects which books an author recognized as the peculiar, divinely inspired scriptures. I'm not going to just sort of give you my own ideas here today, though we'll do some of that. I want to talk about what folks from church history have said. Folks not from North America, but folks from North Africa, like Augustine. He puts it this way. He's talking about the canon of Scripture as supreme authority. He says, but who can fail to be aware that the sacred canon of Scripture, both of the Old and New Testament, is confined within its lone limits? That is, it's sufficient, you see. It's self-sufficient. And then he says, and that it stands so absolutely in a superior position to all later letters of the bishops, that about it we can hold no manner of doubt or disputation whether what is confessedly contained in it is right and true. The rest of that section is intriguing, but I'm going to move on. Here, Augustine is replying to a Manichaean philosopher named Faustus. And he says this, he says, if we're perplexed by an apparent contradiction in Scripture, it is not allowable to say that the author of this book is mistaken. I don't know about you, I haven't always had that posture before Scripture. That's really, that's really humble. The author of this book is mistaken. That's not allowable to say, Augustine says. Amen. But either the manuscript is faulty, more on that tomorrow, or the translation is wrong, or he simply says we've not understood. Then he says this, Scripture has a sacredness peculiar to itself, but in consequence of the distinctive peculiarity, there's that word again, of the sacred writings, he says we're bound to receive as true whatever the canon shows to have been said even by one prophet or apostle or evangelist. Now I want to illustrate peculiarity from, another, from some other ancient documents. You've heard of this book, this Gospel of Thomas, right? Yeah, you can read about it in this book pictured here by Bart Ehrman. But in saying 52, we get this. His disciples said to him, Jesus, 24 prophets spoke in Israel, 
and they all spoke about you. That's actually orthodox. That's actually pretty good from the disciples in the Gospel of Thomas. 24 prophets probably means the 24 books of the Hebrew Jewish canon. This is all of what we would call the Old Testament. They all spoke about Jesus. But then look at what the Jesus of the Gospel of Thomas says. He says, he said to them, you have abandoned the one who lives in your presence and have spoken of the dead. Now contrast that with what we read about Jesus saying in Matthew 5, 17, where he says, I did not come to abolish the law and the prophets, but to fulfill them. Right? He doesn't, he doesn't speak about the law and the prophets as dead. He speaks about them as having this abiding prophetic word in great need of fulfillment. And actually, all of the Gospels in our canon have that same stance towards the Old Testament Scriptures. Jesus is in continuity with them. But the Gospel of Thomas doesn't set Jesus up that way. Jesus treats them as dead. And the apostles, or the disciple, anyone who would read them and follow them, has abandoned the one who lives in their midst. Now here's another one. Ask yourself how this flies in Bible study on Monday night. This is the very last saying of the Gospel of Thomas. Simon Peter said to him, Jesus, let Mary leave us, for women are not worthy of life. Right? There's a peculiarity there too, right? But I don't think this fits the sacred peculiarity. Jesus said, I myself shall lead her in order to make her male, so that she too may become a living spirit, resembling you males, presumably the other disciples. For every woman who will make herself male will enter the kingdom of heaven. Y'all, the truth is more interesting than the fiction. <laughs> yeah. so, so when we talk about peculiarity, we don't mean like utter strangeness like that. What we mean, right, is if there's a peculiarness of our canonical books. There's a divine inspiration, right, that goes through them completely. And God speaks to his people through those books. And, and to use another metaphor, we are his sheep learning to listen to the voice of the shepherd, aren't we? Through these canonical books. But the voice of God is not found in the Gospel of Thomas. No way. No way. I encourage folks to read these Gospels. They come and they ask me. I never say don't read them, because I just go read them anyway at that point. I just encourage people to go read them and, and see the bizarreness. I left out this Gospel of Peter, so-called, where at the end this cross talks, the wooden cross actually talks. Okay. Um, you judge for yourself whether that reaches the level of sacred peculiarity as Augustine laid out earlier. So that's peculiarity. Now I want to talk about a live issue about the Old Testament canon. Because unlike the New Testament canon, which all the major branches of Christians, Christianity agree on, 27 books, the Old Testament actually uh, brings a number of differences to a head, okay, in terms of what books are included. So I want to talk about how two different canons, the Roman Catholic and the Protestant canon, came together. And, uh, and at the end, I want to wrap this up with what I think is the original canon or the oldest canon. But just so you're aware, this is, this is actually the table of contents from one of my grandmother's Bibles. And uh, you'll see that there are seven titles in there that probably are not in your Bible if you're a Protestant here today. 
So Tobit, Judith, Wisdom, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, 1st, 2nd, Maccabees uh, are in the Roman Catholic Bible. But from 1647, at least with something like the Westminster Confession, we can see that these books commonly called Apocrypha are not being of divine uh, inspiration and are no part of the canon of the Scripture. And it wasn't long after. They used to be printed in English Bibles, the Apocryphal books. But uh, by 1820, 1830, they stopped being printed in English Bibles. More on that later. So how did we get here then? How did we get to these two canons? Briefly, three periods. Some of you are like, oh no, a history lesson. But I promise, this history lesson is important. Because we're going to talk about how you have your Bible. And why a Roman Catholic has her Bible, you see. That's, that's what we're going to unpack here today. I'm going I'm to be very brief on this period before Christianity, and then the last two are more important for our purposes. The first thing we need to understand is that Jews, during the time of Jesus and before probably, numbered their books as 22 or as 24. You have 39 in your Protestant Bible, 46 in the Roman Catholic Bible, so Jews have 22, but the way they get there is all the double books were included originally on one scroll, okay? One scroll, so counted as one book. First and Second Samuel, one book. First, Second Chronicles, one book. Ruth, Judges, okay, included with, um, well, Ruth included with Judges, Lamentations with Jeremiah, okay, etc. To cut to the chase on this, only 17 books are quoted before the time of Jesus or during the time of Jesus. But we would call this a core canon, okay? When Jesus and the Pharisees go head-to-head -head over the issue of marriage and divorce in Matthew 19, both sides agree that the Scriptures contain the answer, don't they? Yeah. There's a canon. There's a norm. There's an authority even during the time of Jesus, isn't there? And, they, and both sides, Jesus, Pharisees, expect that the Scriptures contain the answer on the question of divorce and remarriage. All right, I want to fast forward now, though. Early Christianity. This is the phase that we get our Old Testament from. Very, very important. When was a book written? We'll talk about that in a second. Was a book in the Hebrew canon? Some of you might be surprised that your Old Testament comes from the Hebrew canon. Yeah, because many early Christians thought so. Paul in Romans 3.2, what advantage is there to being a Jew? Paul says, much in every way. One of the first things he says is they possess the oracles of God. Yeah, they possess the oracles of God. So if you want to know where God has spoken, go to the local Jewish synagogue in the first century, and they'll have something to tell you about, about where God has spoken, where the oracles are from. Finally, there was a criterion of was a book you read and accepted in the church. Now, about time. This matters. This matters big time. When was a book written? We're back to the Jewish historian Josephus around 100 AD. He puts it this way. Five of these 22 books he's talking about are the books of Moses. The prophets after Moses, he says, wrote the history of what took place in their own times in 13 books. So we're up to 18, right? Math's not my major, but I, I think we're up to 18 so far. Okay. And then the, the remaining four books contain hymns to God, like the Psalms, 
and instructions, like the three books of Solomon. So, so 22 books, he says, and then he says that these are all written from Moses and then, from Artaxer- and then to Artaxerxes, the, the king who was in power around the time of Esther. But then he says, from Artaxerxes to our own time, every event has been recorded. That is, Josephus has written down every event from Esther on. But he says that record is not judged worthy of the same trust. Athanasius of Alexandria, famous bishop, around 367, he puts it this way, who has made the simple folk believe that these books belong to Enoch, even though no scripture existed before Moses? You see, lots of Christians around Athanasius' time were confused, and like Christians today, is the book of Enoch in our canon? Should we look at it? Should we read it? Should we follow the book of Enoch as our authority? One of Athanasius' arguments against that is, well, that's impossible, because no scripture was written before the time of Moses. That time criterion, right? So Enoch, who lives well before the time of Moses, must be ruled out, according to Athanasius. Fascinating. Here's one from a Christian source called the Muratorian Canon and about a book that was very, very popular in early Christian circles called the Shepherd of Hermas. This document says Hermas wrote the shepherd very recently, like around 200, in our times and therefore it ought indeed to be, re- to be read. But it cannot be read publicly, he says, to the people in church as either among the prophets, the Old Testament scriptures, whose number is complete, or among the apostles, for it was written after their time. Yeah, if you're going to engage with folks, or even have, have little uh, sort of debates in your own heart and mind about which books are authoritative, which ones Christians have followed over the millennia, the time criterion is important. When was it written? Was it written during the time of the apostles? Was it written during the time of the prophets, whose number is complete, he says, at this point? Very important. Now, this was astonishing to me. I didn't learn this until much, much later in life, that church fathers actually held to the Hebrew canon. I was shocked. I thought I would go back and study Athanasius, this chap here behind me, Gregory of Nazianzus, and I thought I would see longer lists of books than what they actually recorded for me. And in this context, Gregory is encouraging a young convert, a young believer, saying, look, receive these books of the rather ancient Hebrew wisdom. He says, I've set down the ancient 22 books corresponding to the number of the letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Isn't that interesting? 22 books corresponding to 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet. Newsflash, though, Gregory doesn't include books like Tobit or Judith. Interesting. Gregory keeps his canon list in very close um, alignment with the Hebrew canon. All right, I'm going to skip this one quickly, but Augustine basically takes a different view. Augustine basically says we should go with any book the church has accepted and read over the years. I'll, see, I'll show you why that comes into play here in a moment. Here we get a criteria crunch then, right? The Hebrew, the Hebrew criterion for canonicity, only 22 books, was going to clash with Augustine's criterion, right, about what to read, what do you read, what do you accept, yeah? 
Because that latter criterion is going to cause you to read and accept more books, right, than just the Hebrew. Well, this actually shows up in the fourth, in the fourth century showdown between a chap named Jerome and this Augustine figure that we've been talking about. These two share letters with each other, back and forth, back and forth. Jerome puts it this way, around 393 AD, just as there were 22 letters with which we write in Hebrew. Interesting, he says he writes in Hebrew. Dr. Noonan, did you put the pickup on that? He writes in Hebrew. Yeah, it's interesting. So 22 scrolls or books are reckoned, he says. It's fascinating. And then he goes on to list all of the books that would actually be in our Protestant Bible. He says it. And then the Apocrypha here, he actually says, are outside of the canon. But he lists them anyway. But they're outside of the canon. Now contrast that, four or five years later, Augustine sets down to list out the books of the Old Testament. And here are all the books we would recognize, but then instead of putting off these apocryphal books to the side, he includes them within, doesn't he? Mixed together, intermingled. So who's right? That's an audacious question to even ask, right? Yes, that's an audacious question to even ask. But if we could answer it traditionally, that is maybe who's got the older viewpoint, we might be able to make some progress in the answer to that. So here's a list of books dated to 170 AD, a couple centuries before Augustine and Jerome. What's interesting is that when Melito, who lived in Sardis, Turkey, and he goes back east to the land of Israel because he wants accurate information. Where do the books come from? What, what, are, the, what are their names? What's the order? This is the list he comes back with. No Apocrypha books. No apocryphal books. He also doesn't include Esther, which is interesting. A little bit earlier, in something called the Bryennios list, we actually get the list of books that mirrors our canon almost exactly. But again, no Apocrypha listed in the second century amongst the canonical books. So what do we do with the Apocrypha? What do we do with the Apocrypha? All right, put your thinking caps on here. Because we tend to think in terms of scripture and not scripture, right? Is that fair? Yeah, we tend to think in terms of canon and not canon. Yeah, we're a little simplistic on this. The early fathers are actually more complex. And I think it's helpful. They actually, they actually lead the way here, or could lead the way, if we followed them. Here's Athanasius again. He puts it this way, after he's listed all the canonical books, he says this, these canonical books are the springs of salvation. I want to pause there just for a second. This may come across in this setting very academic, okay? But that first sentence should keep us from merely uh, looking at this issue academically. This is, this is an issue that is wrapped up with eternal destinies. These are the springs of salvation. These are the sources that, by which one comes to be saved, is what Athanasius is saying. He basically quotes Matthew 5, if you go to these words of Jesus, then you'll be satisfied forever, is the point. This is not an academic issue, primarily. This is a book, or this is an issue about where do we learn 
how to be saved. From whose voice are we listening to? And we can talk about this. Are we listening to the voices of culture? Or are we listening to the voice of God who has saved us with His saving revelation, right, preeminently in Jesus Christ, but also in His written Word? These books are the springs of salvation is how Athanasius begins. Then he says this, there are other books outside of the preceding which have not been canonized, but have been prescribed by the ancestors to be read. And he goes on to list books like Tobit and Judith and the Wisdom of Solomon in that section. But then he says, nevertheless, beloved, the former books are canonized, the latter are only read. And then he gives a third category when he says there's no mention of the apocryphal books. He's using that word apocryphal differently than we do. He's talking about the books like Gospel of Thomas. He's talking about the books like the Book of Enoch or the Testament of the Patriarchs. He's talking about dangerous books, books that are not orthodox and not helpful. So three tiers of literature. That's different than our canon and not canon, isn't it? He actually has canon, books that establish doctrine. Then he has apocrypha, dangerous books. And then he, in the middle, he has this kind of edification or devotional category, books that are to be read to new converts. Jerome puts it this way. He says, these books are for the edification of the people, not for the authoritative confirmation of church doctrine. So we really do have three kinds of books here, canonical, readable, and apocryphal, which are not to be used. So coming out of this early Christian period, there were two positions, two main positions. The books were outside the canon but could still be used for edification. Then you had the position of Augustine, which integrated those books within the canon, you see. How was this resolved in the Reformation? And then ultimately, right, for the modern period that we live in today, how was this solved? I don't have time to explain this image, so it's just there to look kind of pretty. <laughs> It's a columnar Bible from 1522, but that one image just symbolizes the whole period of the 16th century and really the 15th century. Everyone was going back to the sources. That's a Hebrew text, a Latin text, and a Greek text with a Latin translation between the lines for those who couldn't read Greek. Isn't that fascinating? That just symbolizes the whole spirit of the age to answer the questions about authority of Scripture, where God's voice can be found. We need to know the languages. We need to go back to the sources. But anyhow, in the preface to this Complutensian polyglot, there's a, there's a preface to the reader by Cardinal Himenes. Now, Himenes is most well known for his role in the Spanish Inquisition. Do you know what that is? Nobody expects it. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So, so, so we've got the, we've got the Spanish, the, the leader of the Spanish Inquisition taking this up. And he says, but to be sure, there are books outside of the canon in his, in his polyglot. But these are for edification, not for establishing church doctrine. He gets that from Jerome, doesn't he? What's interesting is that the Pope at this time, would have to approve of this polyglot being published. So the Pope would also agree with these statements on the canon. Do you see that? Yeah. 
This isn't 1517. I celebrate that in some ways more, more enthusiastically than Luther nailing 95 theses to the Wittenberg door, also in 1517. Yeah. Speaking of Luther, in 1534, he published his German Luther Bible here. He actually includes the Apocrypha, and he says, that is, these are the books not considered equal to Holy Scripture, but which are still useful and good to read, he says. He includes them down here in the table of contents, but notice they are not numbered. The Luther Bible, 1534, uh, could be a way forward in the future. That brings us to the Council of Trent, which made a decree that said, basically, unless you accept this canon list of biblical books, you're accursed, you're anathema, okay? That's not a good thing, just so we're clear. It's a Greek word, but, but it's not, not a good thing. You're accursed if you don't accept these books. What's interesting is that we're learning more about the history of the Council of Trent even today, because the Vatican has finally opened up records that were, that were taken and notes that were taken during those meetings. And uh, what we're learning is that there are these lesser-known theologians like Bonuccio, who actually makes a strong point and apparently sways the council that, the, that Trent should not try to resolve questions long disputed among reputable theologians. That is, at one point he stopped everybody and said, wait, are we deciding between Jerome and Augustine on the canon right now? And they were all like, are you crazy? Of course we're not doing that. Who would do that? Who would decide between those two? So no, that's not what we're doing. Interesting, that's not what we're doing, was what they said. We're not deciding between the two different canons of Augustine and Jerome. But Jesuit church historian O'Malley, John O'Malley from Boston College, puts it this way. He says, that absolutely crucial qualification of the decree may have been clear to the prelates, to those who went to the council. But the text they produced, that, that text with the anathema, right, the, the curse, the text they produced gave no hint of it. In this case, at least, the council itself must be held responsible for the misunderstanding. So we're learning more about Trent, and I hope that that can lead to better dialogue as we move forward. And uh, I know there's some Anglicans in the room, so I thought I would bring the 39 articles on the question. How, how do Protestants handle the Apocrypha, well, they list the books of the Old Testament. Then at the bottom, they don't even bother to list the books of the New Testament, right? That issue is long settled. But then in the middle here, they have these books that the church reads for manners, instruction and manners, but doesn't apply them to establish any doctrine. Here's the original King James Bible, 1611 table of contents. The Apocrypha was printed right in there. Astonishing. Right, I said about 1830, the Foreign Bible Society decided we're no longer going to print the Apocrypha in our English Bibles. And so from that time on, they ceased to be printed along with the rest of the Old and New Testament scriptures. All right, some quick conclusions here, and then we'll wrap this up. The first is that if canon means anything, it means authority. This is the topic of this week. What are you resting your faith and your life upon? Is it the canon of Scripture? 
You should reflect on that this week. What is governing your life? What I hope I've shown, at least to some degree, in a very short presentation, is that the canon wasn't created from bare, a bare selection process, nor was it created by a council. All kinds of misinformation out there on these sorts of questions. But the canon wasn't created from a bare selection process. Rather, the sacred peculiarity of the books that are in our Bible, combined with that traditional criteria that we just looked at, when was a book written? Was it included in the Hebrew canon? Was it read and accepted by the churches? These criteria caused the church to learn to hear the shepherd's voice, to hear the shepherd's voice, the sacred peculiarness of the divine scriptures themselves. And lastly, we need to rest in providence. Anyone who worries or is anxious over this issue need not be. I hope, though, you're inspired to more curiosity to study the matter for yourself. But providence ensures that Christians have the authoritative books that we need to be saved and to live holy lives before God and with each other. And with that, I will conclude this first talk. Thank you so much for your attention. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.